I want you to read the last verse. Somebody read the last verse of Romans 12. We live in such awful days. Um, I'm almost afraid to look at the newsfeed on my phone anymore. I'm almost afraid to pick up the newspaper or turn on uh, the news on TV because every day or so, it seems like there is worse tragedy in news. Uh, we addressed this just briefly last week, and I, and I won't um, attempt to address what is a, a Solomonic issue, uh, the issue of justice in our world. Um, I won't attempt to try to try to bridge that gap today, although I think the, the gospel that we're going to be sharing today uh, deals with it in so many ways. Somebody read the last verse of Romans 12. Does that speak to our day? Does the Bible speak to our day? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It, it does say, that, that I believe the answer is not, uh, and by the way, if you read contextual verses, the, the two or three verses before, um, uh, Paul's dealing with the fact that, okay, you know, when it's not going well, don't even consider revenge. Leave that with the Lord. And overcome, but you can overcome evil with good, he says. Let that kind of ruminate these, in these hard days. Uh, in, in your mind, of what God would have you do to overcome evil, but the only way to overcome it is with good. Hey, would you, would you quote 2 Corinthians 5.17 with me? Think you can? We're going to put the reference first and last, okay? You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5. 17. Now, if you learn nothing else in this summer series, maybe it will at least know one verse of Scripture, which is not a bad, not a bad thing. That's good. Now, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were on, went on a camping trip. That in itself sets up really funny. They had a good meal, and they laid down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. What does that tell you? Holmes said. Well, Watson pondered for a minute and said, astronomically, you remember Dr. Holmes is really smart. Um, uh, Dr. Watson's really smart. Astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. Meteorology, Meteorologically, I suspect that we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. Uh, what does it tell you? Holmes was silent for a minute and then spoke. Someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> you know, there is the obvious and there's the not so obvious, you know? <laughs> now, we've been dealing... We've been dealing for the last three or four weeks with Paul's observation of the world as it is, of the nation of Israel as she is. Um, he mounts an argument uh, in the first couple of chapters to show that, that neither Jew nor Gentile has an advantage. 
Gentiles might claim that they're not responsible for their sin because they didn't know God's law. But Paul notes that they violated the will of God anyway, and it, as it was demonstrated in creation, visible to every person. As for his fellow Jews, uh, Paul's going to uh, point out that having God's law and obeying it are two very different things. And that kind of brings us to what we're going to talk about today in chapter 3. This problem that exists, and it really, has, um, it really has a bearing for us on even the, this kind of pervading issue in, today, in today's world of the problem of evil in the world. How could anyone survive God's just judgment? How can God be merciful, loving, and, uh, and still um, bring judgment on evil? Well, on, on your outline today, I just cast a couple of questions on our uh, um, opening paragraph here. In this project, uh, God's project of recreating the world, How's he going to get involved? In light of what we've looked at the last two weeks, can anyone find peace with God? Can he be merciful and still judge evil? Paul's going to kind of dive uh, headlong into that uh, in the opening verses. He's going to continue to make his case in the opening verses of chapter 3, and then by Romans uh, 3, uh, 20 or so, he's going to, going to help us to, to deal with this. Literally, guys, as you begin to read the book of Romans, which is, um, have I told you the story that, that um, when we take Heather to a restaurant, she'll always order some decadent dessert that I pay for, right? She'll eat like two bites and she'll push it back and say, mm, that's too rich. And I'm thinking, why didn't you figure that out before you ordered it? But, okay. Um, which means it's, it's just kind of packed. The book of Romans is rich. It's packed in. Every verse is full of all kinds of meaning. Um, you could study this book the rest of your life and still be mining gold the last day of your life. Okay? So, what we're kind of dealing with here is from really about 117, so the 17th verse of the first chapter, to about 320, which is right after where we're going to pick up today, Paul has established that both Jew and Gentile alike were pretty much doomed. So he's going to pick up that now in verse 21 and 22. Somebody read uh, Romans 3, verse 21 and 22 out loud for us, would you? All right, two important phrases that he kind of pivots with in verse 21, all right? The first one is, but now. He's been making the case for two and a half chapters, and he gets to 321 and says, but now. The idea here is, with this phrase, he begins to explain how God unravels the problem that, that he's been talking about for two and a half chapters. Now he's going to say, 
with this but now, he's going to begin to talk about the playing field has been leveled. Now, I've said this in other contexts before, but I think it's certainly true today, and we'll, we'll deal with it a lot. I just want you to think a little bit about how much you're in your mind and how much in your heart and how much in you deal with things in the world or things in, uh, at work or in family or whatever, how much of you tends to go toward the us versus them idea? Can I be transparent with you? Jim and I had a brief talk about that this morning. There's a lot that's going on in our world that's despicable that causes me to want to really deal with the us versus them. Well, we don't do that. <laughs> you know. It's them that's the problem. Right? Whether we're talking about terrorism or whether we're talking about racial tension, isn't it true that we've got an us versus them mentality that pervades our society and even... To some certain extent, and I, I almost say ouch as I say this, in some ways pervades the church. I'm not talking about Crossy's Community Church. I'm talking about the church universal. Us versus them. We got it. They don't got it. Really good English, right, Sally? So he says here, he begins to say, you know what? There's, the day has come when there's no longer an us versus them. Now, this, the second phrase that he's going to deal with is the phrase, apart from the law. Apart from the law. All this is in, in one verse here in, uh, in 321. I want to read it to you from uh, the New American Standard. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's going to say here, the second idea that he, that he conveys here is that What's going to unravel this problem will not be the law. It'll be something apart from the law. Now, by the way, I want to be sure we have a common understanding. When he says the law, what's he talking about? The law of Moses. So you can talk about the first five books of the Old Testament. You can talk about everything that the Old Testament conveys or whatever. But it's the idea that, that what was presented there didn't quite... Um, and I'm going to talk about why it didn't get us to the point we needed to get to. It got us ready for it, okay? Um, by the way, I, I was listening to actually a, a, a CD sermon on the way in here this morning. And I, I've just got to continue to say that if you're in the camp, and it's easy to land in this camp, if you're in the camp that seems to think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, this study is really good for you, I think, and for me. Because I, I get there sometimes. The old, vengeful, kind of the Old Testament, we see an old, it seems like, a vengeful, wrathful God. And in the New Testament, we see, see a loving, sacrificial God. Well, the truth is that Jesus being God's Son conveys Him to us in a way that we can't see Him in the Old Testament. He's trying. Um... Uh, this apologist that I was listening to this morning talked about one of the older books in the Bible is the book of Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, one of the problems is Jonah goes to Nineveh where he did, he eventually goes to Nineveh to preach where he didn't want to go, right? And they respond to the message 
and repent. If, you, if you'll notice, the end of the book of Jonah closes with Jonah being mad at God because he's too forgiving. That's the Old Testament God. Now, now check it out, the last chapter or so of Jonah, he's ticked at God because he's too forgiving. Why would you forgive these people? And he's, by the way, the preacher. Okay? Now, so, apart from the law, here's what, what I think Paul's saying here. The Jews failed at keeping it. The, Israelite, the nation of Israel failed at keeping the law, so it didn't bring them where they needed to go, right? The Gentiles were excluded by it, so it didn't get us there, did it? It got us ready to get there. We're going to deal with that in just a little bit. And here's, here's my kind of money thought for the day, verse 22. The Bible is saying here that there is no difference between us and them. Does that make anybody nervous? You know? Hey, come on. I was born in Garvin County. You know? I was talking to somebody who also was raised in Garvin County this week at a, at a funeral service, and, uh, and I realized that I've known this lady since nine months before I was born. We went to church together nine months before I was born in Paul's Valley, America. That ought to qualify you for something, right? No, kind of doesn't. Whether I was born or whether I lived, Mark, in the hill in St. Louis or somewhere else, I, I have no claim of privilege here. The, ground, the playing field has been leveled. All are going to need to follow the same path. What's that path? Did you notice it talks a little bit here in verse 22 about the path? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. That's what it says in the New American Standard. Jesus said... I am the path. John 14, 6. says, I'm the way. The original language here, when it talks about um, somebody, if you've got an NIV Bible in front of you, read verse 22 to us again, would you? Somebody out loud? If you got NIV. Okay. No difference between Jew and Gentile. And the idea conveyed here is it, it, it is translated in NIV through faith in Jesus Christ. My understanding is that in the original language, it really talks about through faith of through the faith of Jesus Christ. Now that, that's a different idea. That it was his faithfulness, his life, that qualifies us to go down this path, the faith of Jesus Christ. What he did matters supremely, supremely here. And the Bible says there is no distinction. Uh, what Paul read from, uh, from the NIV says there's really no, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Okay, now, let's, let's read ahead a little bit. Somebody read verse 23 and 24. These two verses couldn't be more important. Somebody got it? For all I sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
right. We've got to see them together. Verse 23 paints the problem, kind of like chapter 1 and 2 did. It paints the problem. Verse 24 unravels the problem, gives us the answer. The idea in verse 23, you heard it, you may have uh, read it uh, or quoted it even in the past. Maybe some, uh, some um, scripture memory program you were in had you memorize uh, the Roman's road to salvation. Uh, Romans 3.23 is right in the middle of that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the, the issue here of the word glory uh, we need to unpack. The, the glory of God is talking about not only His greatness, but His goodness. Not only His greatness, His bigness, but His goodness. Not only His, um, not only, and look up these two words, or ask, ask Cole Fakes, he'll help you with them. Not only Cole, the transcendence of God, but His eminence as well. And it's, the Bible is saying we've all fallen short of that goodness. That's the word I wanted you to kind of put in the blank here. Now, would somebody go, uh, first chapter of the Bible, the Bible talks about how you and I were created. Were we created good? Well, we, God said it was a good thing we were created. Let's go to Genesis 1. Somebody read verse 26 and 27. It's going to talk about how kind of the model or the, um, the paradigm or the uh, template that God used to make us, to make you and me, to make mankind. Somebody read verse 26 and 27. clear here to me that the Bible says that you and I were created in the image of God. One theologian describes it this way. Yes, we were created in His image, but when we look back at that image, we're looking at a cracked mirror. Sin has caused the image of God to be distorted in you and me. Now, by the way, one of the ways in which we were created in the image of God is we were created spiritual. There's a part of you inside you. It's called a soul or a spirit. There's a part inside you that is the essence of you that was given you or you were created with that so that you could communicate with, so that you could have a relationship with God. It's the spiritual side of you that communicates with, the, with God himself because the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that God is spirit. And we who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we connect with him, or we commune with him, or we have a relationship with him, spirit to spirit. Doesn't mean that my body doesn't matter. It just means I've got a soul inside of me that allows me to connect with God in that way. But the Bible says here that we are created in the image of God, but the, the, the point I want to make here is that image has been cracked. Now, by the way, if you're like me, it's been messed up by sin. If you're like me, um, um, Travis, you're not like me in this way, okay? Joe and I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s. You were born when? 96. 96, okay? Wow. Roxy, this doesn't fit for you either, kiddo. Ray, when was she born? 
2008, okay, uh, she gets the prize for being the youngest in here probably, but okay, the idea is, um, the idea is, uh, if you grew up in the 1960s and 70s, you were reading a lot of stuff about self-esteem. Remember the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay? And, and remember, all this stuff kind of had a bearing on how we raise children, and that's, by the way, why I'm so messed up. <laughs> it, yeah, that's why the therapist has a heyday with me. But, uh, you know, it, it, was the, it was the decade of the hippie rebellion, Woodstock, free sex movement arrived, urging all of us to do your own thing. Various books fueled this line of thought as they taught people to give up in authentic ways. Self-acceptance was seen as the key to a fulfilling, authentic life. Thus, the self-esteem movement was born. There's a monumental problem with that Paul deals with here in Romans 3.23. We're all goofed up, he says. Am I, re am I being disrespectful of Scripture here? All of us, okay, whether you were born in Massachusetts or California or Garvin County, all of us have goofed up. Romans 3.23 does not say, I'm okay, you're okay. Does it? By the way, if you still got that book in your library, hang on to it. Just don't read it, okay? <clears throat> Many of us had a copy of that book in 67. Romans 3.23 tells you the truth. Your goodness, however much there is there, or however much there's not there, falls way short of God's perfect example. We have fallen short of God's goodness. Now, verse 24, <coughs> excuse me, if verse 23 tells us the problem, verse 24 tells us the answer to human sinfulness. Would somebody read it out loud one more time, verse 24? Paul, you, you still there? That's good, right there. This is the answer to human sinfulness. There's an answer that you didn't have to give that was provided for you. And the truth of it is, and we're going to unpack this in the rest of our time together today, it is not deserved. Go, just flip over half a dozen pages to chapter 11. 11.6 11, is going to talk about this in spades. Travis, since you're a college boy, would you mind to read that? 11.6, okay? He's, he's smarter than me. He can do this. 11.6. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, no, uh, if it were grace, would no longer be grace. If it were anything else, it would no longer be grace, Paul says. Here's, here's an oxymoron phrase. Deserving of grace. That's a problem phrase, isn't it? If I'm deserving of it, then it doesn't require grace. A contradiction in terms. Um, without him, it's saying here, 
Without him, there is no hope for any one of us. For any of us. I uh, read a book back, oh, a while back. It's when I was working here. So it's been longer than I can remember, actually, now. But um, uh, we were working, uh, Janie and I, we were working on some apologetic stuff here. And I read a book by R.C. Sproul, a little thin book. It was a really excellent book, uh, just kind of providing some answers that we were kind of dealing with. And it was interesting because Sproul is dealing with the John 14, 6 problem. Why is there only one path to God? Why is there only one way to God? And that's, by the way, this apologetic stuff I've been listening to this week. What, what I love about Dr. Sproul, what he dealt with here, is he goes through the history of the Old Testament in about three pages of a small paperback book. He goes through the history of the Old Testament. And then he, he talks about what put Jesus on the cross. And he basically reaches a conclusion. The, answer, the, the question is, why is there any way of salvation? Not why is there only one? Because our collective gooses are all cooked if you read it correctly. By the way, those aren't Dr. Sproul's words. Those are mine. The answer is not, why is there only one way? The answer is, the, the question is why is not, why is there only one way? The question is, why is there any way at all? I think Paul kind of dangles us there until verse 23 and 24. Unmerited, undeserved, completely by grace alone, and I'm going to say it again, without him, without what Jesus did for you and me, there is no can we read a couple more verses? Somebody read verse 25 and 26. We're going to deal with a big theological word. 'm um, the concept that's being talked about here um, is the word uh, that is conveyed at least in in my particular translation the New American standard it's the word propitiation you don't have to be able to pronounce it you don't have to spell it we're just going to talk about it for a minute though because it's in several spots here in the scriptures this idea of propitiation let's go to another place where it talks about it go with me over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to read the first four verses of Hebrews 10. This word propitiation was there in, in the verses that, in verse 25, that Eileen read. Listen to verse chapter 10 of Hebrews. For the law, since it only was a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's kind of that idea that the old law 
um, kind of got us ready for it. This idea of propitiation was common in Paul's day. It's not common in our day. But it's going to talk about here the sacrifice for our sin. Okay, go again to the right from Hebrews. Go over to 1 John. Let's go to 2 2. Here's that word. And he himself, it's talking about Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, for all, but also for those of the whole world. It's kind of the idea of the propitiation. Okay? Uh, go to 4.10. Same, still in 1 John. 4.10. He's got, John likes this word. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, that word, propitiation. Uh, a, a common definition of it would be the idea of a satisfactory offering. In this case, a satisfactory offering for sin. Uh, one of my favorite pictures of it, the word is not used there, but it's conveyed, is in Isaiah 6. You don't have to look there. Trust me, I'll tell you the story, okay? Isaiah 6, God has a vision of God, high and lifted up, and His veil filled the temple. You know that story? And, uh, and it makes... Isaiah believes as he looks at the holy God, he has this vision of the holy God, and he says, woe is me. Why? Because I am not holy, he says. In fact, I'm a man of clean, unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and now I have seen the holy God. What does God do? In about verse 6, I think, somewhere in Isaiah 6, 6, he sends an angel he gets some tongs and takes a hot burning coal off of the altar in front of which uh, Isaiah is looking at this vision of God. And he touches his lips with a burning coal. Do not try this at home. What does that action do? It removes his sin. I want to submit to you something. You can, you can talk about it all you want to. You can talk about different shadings of it. Talk about different understandings of Christianity and, and the other, uh, you know, blue million religions out there in the world. But I want to I defy you to show me another place. Show me another system. Show me another religion. Show me another path to God where your sins are removed. I want to submit to you there is none. By the way, it got Jesus put on the cross because if you remember, there were a few times in the Gospels where he would heal somebody and as he healed them, he would say, your sins are forgiven you. And the, the legalists around him would say, hey, time out. Nobody can forgive sins but God. I think somewhere hidden in, in some annal of the New Testament, some uh, hidden... Um, Something we've missed in the Gospels. When the, when the lawyer said, only God can forgive sins, I think Jesus said, duh. Okay? Because he was. Muhammad didn't remove anybody's sin. Buddha? Uh-uh. Confucius? No. There is only one Savior who will say to you, come to me. 
and I'll forgive you. And by the way, he's operating under the premise, and this goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's operating on the premise that any sin is a sin against God. Sally, if I hurt you, I've hurt him too. In Jesus is the only place where you will find your sin being removed from you. Isn't that the story of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? The burden was lifted, rolled down the hill, if you've ever read that book. Now, so let me fill in your blank because you're thinking, where in the world is he? Okay, here we go. Christ died for our sin, not for his own How do I know that? Because the Bible depicts him as having none. He was a satisfactory offering, a pure offering, a sinless offering. His claim is unique. And in verse 26, in order to remain just, he takes the punishment of sin upon himself. The Bible says here in verse 26 that he is both just and the justifier. That's just, I wish we had 30 minutes to just take that one apart. He's both just and the justifier. Wow. By the way, this is a very theological book. I'm trying to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, but it's making me think big thoughts. So hopefully you'll go with me somewhat on that. Somebody read verse uh, 27 and go down through 31. We'll finish up. Over here, go. Okay, I'm going to give you rapid fire several thoughts here and then I'm going to unpack them a little bit and we'll close. The focus is clearly here on his action, Jesus' action, not ours, not mine. And it's, therefore, there's no boasting appropriate here. In fact, the truth is, the way to receive this forgiveness is admitting that I need it. That doesn't sound like there's a very good room there for any boasting. The way I receive Entrance into the in-group is by admitting, I don't belong. No boasting needed here. It seems clear to me in verse 28 that being justified, being set right before God, is an avenue that's open to A-L-L, to all. And as I read verse 29, I I just got to ask the question here. Can the Lord truly heal our divisions? And if our our world and our nation has ever been been more divided, I don't remember a time. But the truth is that one of the implications of Jesus' atoning sacrifice is breaking down the barrier between Jesus and everyone else, breaking down the barrier between God and man. And therefore, if the barrier is broken between God and me, then it ought to be broken between me and you. 
that might be the most sincere litmus test of whether or not he is real in my life. He broke down the barriers. It's going to, in, in the last couple of verses that, that uh, Teresa read here, it's going to talk a little bit, it's going to reference against circumcision because, because Paul is dealing with that in this whole book. And the idea here is this outward symbol of being part of God's uh, covenant people. To be uncircumcised once meant exclusion. But he's saying that exclusion is no more. The purpose of the law here, he says, was to create a unique people into whom the Savior could be born who breaks down those barriers. He breaks down those barriers. Now, this is all nice, right? So we're all in, right? Mm, Not so much. What about those who don't want to be in? And by the way, there are those who just say, man, it's not for me. I want to submit to you that all can be in. But I got to want to be in. All won't be in. Somewhere in the amazing 80s, okay, I was living in eastern Kentucky and uh, this this 100-year-old woman, literally she was 100 years old, maybe 99 years old at the time, asked me to go visit her son-in-law who was far from God. His name was Ed Griggs. She said, he's in the hospital. He's not doing very well, and I would like you to go visit him. He's far from God, and I really want him to become a Christian. And so, as a you know, pastors do, I went to see him. And it was interesting because when I went to see Ed for the first time, I, I introduced myself to him in his hospital room. He is sitting facing the window, looking out of the window on the edge of his bed. And I've never seen a more tragic and sad figure of a man in my life. He was probably about my age now. And when I walked into his room to introduce myself to Ed Griggs for the first time, I was five minutes after the doctor had come in saying, Ed, you may have six months to live. He had a, a raging cancer that they didn't know what to do with in those days. I forget where it was. And he had just delivered, delivered that message to him, talked a little bit about the implications of it, walks out of the room, and in walks a 30-something-year-old preacher. Ed, my name is Steve. I'm from the church where your mother-in-law attends. I just want to introduce myself, see if there's anything I could do to you today. He began to weep. This wasn't the guy who cried. He said, well, guess what? Here's what they just told me. He and I talked over several days. I visited him nearly every day while he was in the hospital because I was just, you know, here was a guy that, that was being offered to be in, but as yet... It wasn't that he didn't understand it. I want to tell you this. I don't think it was that he didn't understand it. He, he for one thing, had Lottie Barber, his mother-in-law, demonstrating to him every day. But he just didn't want to. Yet. There was a hospital um, volunteer by the name of Georgia Barker. Georgia could sing like a bird. She was in my choir at the time. And, uh, but she was a volunteer, worked three or four days a week at the hospital. And Georgia walked in, having known the same story that I knew, knew that 
Ed was far from God. And she was just kind of making her rounds, but she particularly wanted to go see Ed Griggs and tell him about Jesus. Now, I could have had my feelings hurt, Janie, because I'd been there sharing Jesus with him a lot. And so far with me, it was talk to the hand. But when Georgia walked in, it was a different story. She said to Ed, she took the pen that was in her hand where she was marking up the charts that she was working on. She took the pen that was in her hand, and at the end of kind of talking to Ed about how much Jesus loves him, how much God loves him, and how much he wants to help you through this awful season in your life, she said, Ed, I would like to give you my pen, but the truth is, you can't have it until you accept it. He took the pen and he took the offer of eternal life along with it. And Georgia prayed with him. Okay, here's your last blanks to be filled in. That's why I went to that long story. Mercy offered must become mercy received. It's not enough that all the pieces are in place for you to get there. You've got to accept it. Okay. Stick with me here. We're going to work our way through this deal. Okay? I'll see you next week. God bless you.